Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. We are less than a week away from entering a presidential election year. And if I had to choose just one thing the Republican frontrunner said this year that I think we should carry over to the next year, just one thing from 2023 that tells us everything we need to know about this upcoming election, well, it would probably be this. Under no circumstances, you are promising America tonight you would never abuse power as retribution against anybody. Except for day one. Except for? He's going crazy. Except for day one. Meaning? I want to close the border and I want to drill, drill, drill. That's not not retribution. I'm going to be, I'm going to be, you know, he keeps, we love this guy. He says, you're not going to be a dictator, are you? I said, no, 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 other than day one. Donald Trump telling the world he plans to be a, quote, dictator on day one of his presidency. Defenders of the former president have dismissed that comment as a joke, a one-off quip that was never meant to be taken literally. But Trump himself continues to promote the idea that he will be a vengeful dictator in a second Trump presidency. Over the holiday weekend, he shared this image of a word cloud put together by the Daily Mail. The image was based on a survey of what voters said about Trump's ambitions for a second term. And you can see that the most popular responses, the biggest ones represented in the middle, are power, revenge, and dictatorship. Revenge being the most bold. That is the image that Trump himself wants to cultivate ahead of the 2024 presidential election, an image he wants to promote even as he faces federal criminal charges for unlawfully attempting to hold on to power after the last presidential election. Today, in the federal case against Trump for allegedly trying to overturn the 2020 election, special counsel Jack Smith asked the judge to prohibit Trump from making political arguments and spreading conspiracy theories at trial. Jack Smith wants the court to block Trump from promoting the idea that Trump's prosecution is politically motivated, a.k.a. Trump's so-called witch hunt defense. Jack Smith also wants the court to block Trump's team from raising the baseless conspiracy theory that undercover FBI agents were somehow responsible for January 6th. And Jack Smith also wants to prohibit Trump from blaming Capitol Police, D.C. officials and former Speaker Nancy Pelosi for failing to stop the January 6th attack as he has in the past. One of the big problems was that Nancy Pelosi, Crazy Nancy as I affectionately call her, (laughs) Crazy Nancy Pelosi and the mayor of Washington were in charge, as you know, of security. And they did not do their job. Nancy Pelosi and the mayor are in charge. I assume they were able to do their job. They weren't. Citing those comments and others from Trump, Smith offers this blistering response. Quote, a bank robber cannot defend himself by blaming the bank's security guard for failing to stop him. A fraud defendant cannot claim to the jury that his victims should have known better than to fall for his scheme. And the defendant cannot argue 
that law enforcement should have prevented the violence he caused and obstruction he intended. All of this is a preview of the arguments we might see at trial, currently scheduled to begin March 4th. But whether that trial will actually start on time is anyone's guess. Trump is still appealing his claim that he is immune from prosecution, a claim that will assuredly land before the Supreme Court before the trial can begin. And the Supreme Court may also have to decide whether or not Trump can even be on the ballot in November. Just today, the Michigan Supreme Court ruled that Trump should be allowed to appear on the ballot in that state. And this comes just a week after the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that Trump should not appear on that ballot because of his role in inciting the January 6th insurrection. Trump is expected to challenge that Colorado ruling before the U.S. Supreme Court, with a filing coming as soon as tonight. And just this evening, the Colorado State Republican Party filed its own appeal, asking the Supreme Court to allow Trump on the ballot. Joining me now, Anthony Coley, former senior advisor to, to the Attorney General Merrick Garland and an MSNBC legal analyst. Also with me is Chuck Rosenberg, former U.S. attorney and senior FBI official and an MSNBC contributor. Anthony, Chuck, it is great to see both of you in person here on set. We've, we've got a lot to talk about. Let's start with um, the Colorado Supreme Court ruling. Um, uh, uh, Anthony, is it inevitable that the Supreme Court will will get involved in this? It absolutely is inevitable that this goes to the Supreme Court. I think what struck me about this case, and in particular the Colorado ruling, is Trump's response to the Colorado ruling, Jonathan. He tried to make the argument that he is not an insurrectionist, despite what all of us saw on January 6th um, and the month leading into January 6th. I remember quite well in September of 2020, he was on a national debate stage and he was pressed about, uh, he was asked to condemn violent right-wing extremism. And and he declines to do that. And uh, he instead tells the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. And then I jump ahead to December 2020 uh, of that same year. And uh, he sends out his tweet, come to D.C., we'll be wild. And people mm -hmm. show up by the busloads, Jonathan. And he addresses them on the ellipse of the Capitol. And he uses the word fight or fighting 20 times. And they do what he tells them to do, Jonathan. They go down to the hell, uh, to the hill, and they fight like hell until he tells them to stop. If that's not what insurrection is or aiding and abetting those who engage in an insurrection, I don't know what is. And yet, Chuck, the Michigan Supreme Court, state Supreme Court, comes back and says, well, he has to be on, on the ballot. Were the arguments in, in both cases were they was the Michigan argument different than the Colorado argument? Well, one of the problems, Jonathan, is that state law varies, of course, right. state by state. And this is a paradigmatic example of why the United States Supreme Court needs to hear the case right. and to set a standard for all of the states, right? The last thing you want is a patchwork, right? One state doing one thing, another state doing another thing. It's confusing. It's unfair. It's confusing and unfair to everyone. Right. Whether you like Mr. Trump or dislike Mr. Trump, there should be one set of rules governing whether or not he's on the ballot. And that's why the Supreme Court, I agree completely with Anthony, will step in in this case. I mean, can we just talk about, before we move on to the Jack Smith filing, well, actually, not the Jack Smith filing just yet, but immunity. The question of immunity, which is in one of Jack Smith's, one of Jack Smith's cases. 
Um, the Supreme Court's going to have to get involved in that question. They, pu- they punted uh, earlier I- in the week saying, eh, no, don't, don't give this to us just yet. But this is another question that has, hasn't been tested yet, it, has it, Anthony? That's right. It hasn't been tested. Um, and it is appropriate for the Supreme Court to weigh, weigh in on this, I think. And you're the smart lawyer here. Um, <laughs> so I, I'd be interested in your thoughts. Yeah, Chuck, t- 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 tell us. I mean, I'm not wrong in thinking the Supreme Court is going to have to settle this question of whether a president is immune from prosecution. You're not wrong in thinking that. Anthony's wrong in thinking I'm the smart lawyer. <laughs> It's an unresolved question. The issue is whether or not a president is immune for official acts committed while in office. I think the better way to the argument is that he is not. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think he loses this case in the Supreme Court. If he did something within the official scope of his duties, then he ought to be immune. Any president ought to be immune, that they shouldn't be able to be civilly sued or prosecuted Right. If they're acting in their official capacity, but overturning an election or at least trying to do so is never within the official acts of a president. So I think the argument that he is framing ultimately loses, Jonathan. But Anthony, again, is quite right. It's a case that the Supreme Court is going to need to hear and to resolve. And the other thing I would add here quickly is that, as Judge Chuck noted, he's not a king. He's a one-term president who uh, acted outside of the scope of his Mm -hmm. job. That does not um, uh, immunize you from any type of criminal uh, criminal case. Mm-hmm. Let me get the, the let me get the smart lawyer on one more thing before mm-hmm. we turn to the latest Jack filing news. Jack Smith filing news today. In Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment, there are supporters of Donald Trump um, who are saying, and I think even the, the former president is making this argument. He was he's not an officer. Uh, of the United States, that the president is not an officer of the United States. I'm no lawyer, and I'm certainly no, you know, strict textualist, constitutionalist, but am I wrong in thinking that the president of the United States is the ultimate officer of the United States? It seems incongruous to me, Jonathan, that the drafters of Section 3 <laughs> of the 14th Amendment would have had it apply to everyone else, right. but the most powerful office holder in the United States. That said, The language of that section of the 14th Amendment doesn't by itself answer the question. Common sense does. We could look to other usages for that. There's a bunch of questions in there. You know, was there an insurrection? I think so. Did he engage in an insurrection? I think so. And was he an officer of the United States? I think so. But again, we can think whatever we want. Right. We need the Supreme Court to tell us yay or nay. Okay, but Anthony, okay, so given this Supreme Court, this 6 3 conservative supermajority, will they think so? Especially since these are the same folks who are saying we should read the words of the Constitution the way the founders wrote them. I'm not holding my breath for this. You know, one could hope that they um, look at the facts and uh, and apply the law, Um, but uh, I'm just not uh, convinced that they are good. This is one of those uh, questions that they will uh, rule in the favor of the rule of law. Mm -hmm. My hope um, here, though, Jonathan, is that they quickly decide Mm -hmm. um, whether or not to move forward. That time is of the essence here. Well, let's talk about Jack Smith's filing today and all these things he wants to prevent Trump from from doing a trial, um, calling the charges politically motivated, blaming the police and Nancy Pelosi, blaming undercover uh, FBI agents, saying that they were the ones who were um, behind January 6th. How likely is it, Chuck, that a judge is actually going to agree to that? Yeah. So what— Jack Smith filed is called a motion in limine, a motion at the threshold, a motion at the outset. 
and it's very common. I did this dozens of times when I was a federal prosecutor. You know what issues are likely to occur in your trial, and you're letting the judge know before the trial begins there are a bunch of decisions you're going to have to make. Now, under the rules of evidence, uh, information, evidence that is confusing or irrelevant or prejudicial is typically not admitted. It shouldn't be. And so what the prosecutors are doing here is saying, Judge, I expect that a whole bunch of this irrelevant, confusing, prejudicial information uh, might be adduced by uh, the former president if you permitted it. We want you to rule in advance of trial that this is inadmissible. And so judges get these kinds of motions all the time. Sometimes they rule in advance. Sometimes they reserve judgment. It's a common thing to do, but it's also a very smart thing for Jack Smith to so, do. And I will say one quick thing here. Uh, this filing does not limit what Donald Trump can say outside the courtroom. And that's important here, right? right. Uh, he can still go out and say that Judge uh, uh, Chuckin is biased or racist, even though she's not. He can still go out and say that the, uh, that the, uh, that the case is politicized, even though it's not. That does not limit what he can say um, in the court of public opinion. No, um, Anthony, we've got a couple minutes left, and I, I would love to get both of you to uh, comment on this, but you, Anthony, but your former your former colleague, Deputy Attorney General right. Lisa Monaco, right. uh, was on ABC News this weekend talking about the threats to law enforcement, prosecutors, and, and judges being on the right. rise. Watch this. Right. What we've seen is an unprecedented rise in threats to public officials across the board, law enforcement agents, prosecutors, judges. Um, and election officials, and we are seeing that and responding to it just this week. Just this week, Pierre, we've had cases involving threats to kill FBI agents, a Supreme Court justice, and three presidential candidates. Three. That's just this week. Wow. Lisa Monaco, for those who don't know, she's essentially the chief operating officer of the Justice Department, with the exception of the special counsel. Uh, all of the bureaus, including the FBI and all the components, report into her. Mm-hmm. Um, what, um, what DOJ would tell you, Jonathan, is that they pursue justice aggressively without fear. And that's true. Chuck and I both have seen it. What is also true is the human toll that these threats um, have on Justice Department investigators and agents um, is in their families. This mm-hmm. is real. And I think what you just saw her talk about um, was a, a little bit of the passion behind it. And I think, you know, if we were just talking about um, the special counsel in the federal election case, I think one of the main reasons he um, asked for this limited gag order um, was to protect uh, the staff of the mm-hmm. bureau and their families. And, and Chuck, as a former senior FBI official, did, did you ever face, I love your reaction to Deputy Attorney General Monaco, but did you ever face such threats? Yeah, sadly, yes. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's that uncommon. When I was a federal prosecutor, it happened on a couple of occasions. Look, On one hand, I think the FBI has the resources to address these threats. Agents around the country can go out, knock on doors, and see if threats are real or fictitious. But it means you're not doing something else, Jonathan, right? So if you're going to take 13,000 FBI special agents and put them on task X, then they're not doing tasks Y and Z. And that's a problem, right? I mean, we need the FBI to do a whole bunch of things. This is a terrible distraction. Worst case, it comes to fruition and people get hurt. And that's a real tragedy. 
And we're going to have to leave it there. Chuck Rosenberg, Anthony Coley, thank you both very much for coming to Alex Wagner tonight. We have lots more, a whole lot more ahead tonight, including Nikki Haley's Trump strategy, the one where she barely acknowledges his existence. Can it help her win over the Republican electorate? But first, Israel's Bibi Netanyahu faces growing pressure from the families of hostages still being held by Hamas. It's one of the many challenges making a diplomatic resolution to the conflict ever more elusive. That's next. Stay with us. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Those were family members of Israeli hostages heckling Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Monday while he spoke to Israel's parliament. Netanyahu said Israel's military offensive in Gaza isn't close to finished, while relatives of hostages repeatedly shouted the word now, demanding Netanyahu immediately strike a deal, likely involving a ceasefire in exchange for the return of hostages. Poll after poll has shown that Israelis are not confident in Netanyahu's leadership in this crisis. At the same time, in Gaza and the West Bank, polls have shown that Hamas has only grown grown more popular with Palestinians since the start of this war. And close to 90% of Palestinians want the president of the Western-backed Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, to resign. Finding a diplomatic solution to the war in Gaza would be complicated even with the best leadership. But with a crisis of leadership in both Israel and Gaza, what is the path forward here? Joining us now, Aaron David Miller, senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment and former State Department Middle East analyst and negotiator. Aaron, thank you for being with us tonight. Um, what do you make of Netanyahu's prerequisites for for peace, as he he lays them out. Um, in the Wall Street Journal, he wrote an op-ed where he pulled out these three prerequisites. Um, Israel will have to retain security responsibility over Gaza, quote, for the foreseeable future. Um, uh, uh, Hamas, be, Hamas must be destroyed. Gaza demilitarized, which I just mentioned. And Palestinian society must be de-radicalized. Uh, what do you make of those, and how likely are, um, is any of them to be achieved? First of all, Jonathan, thanks for having me. Look, I think uh, the President's Wall Street Journal article could also be read as a campaign speech. We have to understand that Benjamin Netanyahu is not only trying to defend uh, Israeli security, but perhaps even a more important objective is his political future. On trial for bribery, fraud, breach of trust in a Jerusalem district court before 
three Jerusalem uh, judges. Uh, he will be forced to testify sometime this spring. So he's actually uh, maneuvering in an effort to cling to power because out of power, he faces the prospects, I think, of a conviction and without a plea agreement, uh, jail time. And I think that the objectives here are to keep his right-wing coalition together. And as a consequence, you see destroy, demilitarize, and de-radicalize. Uh, degrade Hamas's uh, capacities, perhaps end its sovereignty in Gaza, okay. Demilitarize in the day after with smart diplomacy and a lot of will and skill from the United States, the international community. Maybe Gaza can put on a better pathway. De-radicalize at a time when uh, the Israelis, in an effort to degrade Hamas, uh, that co-locates its asset, military assets in and around and below civilian populations, uh, those operations have resulted in the deaths, even if you don't believe the Hamas-controlled Ministry of Health, uh, thousands and thousands of Palestinians mm -hmm. who are radicalized. So I think his objectives are more political in nature, and I don't think they're tethered, frankly, to the reality that we see and will see on the ground in Gaza. Is there any possibility that Netanyahu could be removed from power before this war is even over? Hard to imagine uh, during this active, uh, intense campaign. Uh, his party, Likud, does not have a history of devouring its own. And as, as we just talked about, the coalition with two of those right-wing government's extremist ministers, uh, have, they have no stake in bringing the government mm -hmm. down. Uh, the problem is there's really no mechanism right now to remove Benjamin Netanyahu. And yet there will be a political reckoning, as you suggested in, in your preliminary comments, both on the Israeli side uh, and I suspect also with uh, with Mr. Mahmoud Abbas. Mm -hmm. Let me get your thoughts on this uh, ceasefire proposal that the Egyptian government circulated, uh, multi-stage temporary ceasefire um, as a step as a step towards a more permanent ceasefire. H how do you reach a deal for such a ceasefire when both sides are are seemingly so dug into their demands and so far apart in what they want? Donovan, you broke you broke the code here. I mean, you have two sides, Israel and Hamas, implacably opposed to one another. The Israelis are trying to kill the people that presumably they would be negotiating with, however indirectly. And Hamas's objective is to survive, hoping that the Israelis will not be able to destroy Hamas or kill the senior leadership. And international pressure will grow for a ceasefire. And at the end of the day, Hamas will be standing with the capacity to launch rockets and rightly, I might add, declare victory. So, no. Right now, frankly, we're in a long, dark tunnel, Jonathan, and frankly, I, I don't see a way out right now. Mm. Um, uh, um, that's a very so a sobering assessment. One, one last question for you. Um, it seems the, the, the president, President Biden, has been warning um, Israel, the, the prime minister, against occupying Gaza. As we know, um, Netanyahu has said uh, that this campaign is going to go on for a very long time, even talking about occupying a security situation in Gaza. That's where we're headed. That is a situation the president doesn't want, but reality is that that's what's going to happen. Or am I reading this incorrectly? No, I think you got it right. Uh, reality is, I think the Israeli ground campaign will probably shift to a much lower intensity level, intelligence-driven set of operations in by the end of January. But one thing I can predict with great certainty, the Israelis will be operating at so, in some way militarily in Gaza uh, for months to come. 
Aaron David Miller, thank you very much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. More ahead, including the impossible legal peril one Ohio woman finds herself in after suffering a miscarriage. And she's not alone. But first, Nikki Haley wants to close the gap with Donald Trump. But with three weeks until the start of the vote, the primary voting, will her current strategy get her there? That's coming up next. Here on MSNBC, we are staying on top of several fast-moving stories. Today's news requires more facts. A new report finds the climate crisis is getting much worse. More context. We are seeing record numbers of people crossing into the United States just in the southern border. And more ground covered. The mission will continue to carry out regime change in the Gaza Strip. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. The Iowa caucuses are just 19 days away, and it appears that Nikki Haley, while still trailing Donald Trump in the polls, finds herself the best-positioned Republican candidate who has the potential to close the gap with the former president. And after securing the endorsement of popular Republican New Hampshire Governor Governor Sununu earlier this month, the former South Carolina governor is stumping tonight in the Granite State, where she continued her apparent strategy of handling Trump with kid gloves. I believe President Trump was the right president at the right time. I support a lot of his policies. But rightly or wrongly, chaos follows him. These are just about the toughest words you're going to hear Haley lob at Trump in a stump speech. And according to one New York Times reporter who's been following Haley on the campaign trail, Ms. Haley's apparent reluctance to attack her rival, even in the face of what would seem to be political setbacks for him, has raised questions from voters and other Republican competitors about whether she can win while passing up crucial opportunities to derail her most significant opponent. Joining us now, former Republican Pennsylvania Congressman Charlie Dent. He served six terms in the House from 2005 to 2018. Congressman Dent, thanks for being here. Great to be with you, Jonathan. All right. Uh, of the two people on the screen, you're the one person who's actually run for office. Can you please explain Nikki Haley's strategy? How is she going to close the gap with the front runner if she's not going to attack the front runner? There are legitimate ways to attack him. Yeah, as a guy who won office, I ran for office 13 times in competitive districts. And one thing I learned is that in, you know, if, if you're going to try to beat somebody, an incumbent in this case, which we're treating Donald Trump like, you need to attack that person frontally and directly. I don't think there's any way to sugarcoat this. It's very hard 
uh, to run a campaign and use these these rather gentle jabs against Trump. She has to make a case that Donald Trump must be fired before she can be hired. And she is I think she's run a very effective campaign in many ways, very disciplined, very Mm -hmm. smart, uh, strategic. But right now, it just still feels like she's running for second place. She's been very aggressive with Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, and she's been pretty direct with uh, with uh, Ron DeSantis. But those guys don't have a chance of becoming the nominee. She does. And, and Trump is the lead dog. And she just has mm-hmm. not been as aggressive as I think she needs to be. And Chris Christie's kind of called her out on that. You know, he, she needs to channel her inner Chris Christie and, and sharpen those stilettos, as she said. She uses them as weapons. <laughs> she's right. going to have to sharpen those. She's got, she's got to do that. I mean, I, it doesn't make sense to me. If you're running for office, you have to take down the top. You have to take down the leader. But, but Charlie, is the reason why she's not sharpening, the, sharpening those stilettos is because she's afraid of alienating Trump voters? Yes. I mean, she's, she's running this campaign where she's, she feels as if the non-Trump and the anti-Trump Republicans uh, are, you know, feel she hasn't been tough enough on Trump. And then the pro-Trump Republicans feel like she's too tough on Trump. So she's trying to she's trying to thread this needle. I don't think you can really do that. I think she has to get in the lane and just take it, be aggressive and really call Trump out for his conduct and his behavior. Uh, and, and I think they not just Nikki Haley, but the other candidates other than Chris Christie have missed opportunities to slam Trump on these various indictments where they should be calling him out on his, his reckless behavior and bad judgment rather than more or less jumping to his defense, which has really em- empowered Donald Trump mm-hmm. and protected him. Uh, and, and, and frankly, that's why so many Republicans are still with him, because his opponents, you know, have not really called him out on these egregious uh, areas where Trump mm-hmm. has uh, been, been, been horrible. And so I think well, that's her problem. And I, I, you know, she might look good. Luckily for her, you have the Iowa the Iowa caucuses where Trump's likely prevail, but New Hampshire often goes the other way. So that might save her in the end. I hope it does. I mean, it will, that, that could help her because, you know, when, when I was, when I was zigs, New Hampshire often zags and uh, mm-hmm. that could work to her benefit. Let me squeeze in two, two more questions for you before we're out of time concerning the other candidates. Should all those other folks drop out DeSantis, Christie, Ramaswamy, whoever else is running and we've already forgot about? Well, Ramaswamy, yes. Uh, he's going nowhere. He's I, I don't understand his candidacy other than to get another job when he gets done with this race. Uh, DeSantis, his campaign has been in a free fall for some time. Don't see a path for him. Probably be smart for him to get out. But that doesn't necessarily mean DeSantis voters will necessarily fall to Haley. Uh, that's that's not how the math works. So I think that's the case. And Christie's staying in, too, because I think he sees an opportunity in the event Trump really does falter. And you know he wants to be the guy to pick up the pieces and he'll run that aggressive campaign. Okay, and then and then on on uh, Governor Christie, I mean he has been aggressive. He's been you know that the the attack dog. He has not shied away from the fight, and yet he's gone nowhere. So is the lesson from Chris Christie is the lesson in Chris Christie's candidacy that that kind of tactic just isn't going to work in the Republican primary, and so it won't work for Nikki Haley. Well, it's it's not working for Chris Christie as it as it should. Uh, but what what is clear, though, is that a lot of the Christie voters, if they were to uh, go to another candidate at this point, it appears a, a significant number of them or most of them would go to, to Nikki Haley. Uh, but for whatever reasons, you know, Chris Christie has not been able to resonate uh, with uh, enough Republican voters. His attacks have been perceived as a little bit too harsh 
uh, too negative. At the same time, you know, Nikki Haley's strategy isn't necessarily working either. <laughs> She's still well behind Donald Trump, at least nationally, in closing the gap in New Hampshire. So uh, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say which strategy is better, but we're going to find out soon enough uh, whether Nikki Haley's strategy works if she continues down this path. She still does have a real shot in New Hampshire, though. That's right. We are going to find out soon enough. Former Republican Congressman Charlie, Jan- Charlie Dent, thank you very much for coming on tonight. Thank you, Jonathan. And still ahead, the latest post-Dobbs horror story, what one grand jury might decide about the legality of a woman's traumatic pregnancy outcome and what the American public might have to say about it in 2024. That's next. Brittany Watts overcome with emotion after learning her case is moving forward. Watts is charged with felony abuse of a corpse, accused of trying to plunge a toilet after having a miscarriage delivery at 22 weeks while using the restroom. This 33-year-old girl with no criminal record is demonized for something that goes on every day. Those are just some of the details. A grand jury in Trumbull County, Ohio, is weighing as it decides whether to indict a 33-year-old medical receptionist with felony abuse of a corpse for her actions after having a miscarriage. In September, Brittany Watts became one of the tens of thousands of Americans who suffer the trauma of miscarriage every year. But a few facts made Watts' trauma distinct. Nearly 22 weeks pregnant, Watts had a rare natural second trimester miscarriage, and it happened 15 months after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, allowing state after state to criminalize not only abortions, but pregnancy itself and the various outcomes that come with it. For those reasons, Watts' doctors spent eight hours debating the ethics of treating Watts even after they determined the pregnancy was not viable. Oh, and the nurse who reportedly rubbed Watts's shoulders and told her everything would be okay after her miscarriage? Well, she reported Watts to the police. Earlier this month, Watts told the Washington Post, quote, I am grieving the loss of my baby. I feel anger, frustration, and at times shameful. She's not alone. From Kate Cox to Amanda Zorowski, women in red states across the country are showing us how dire things can get when courts become the arbiters of whether you live, die, or face charges while pregnant. Joining me now, Minnie Timuraju, president and CEO of Reproductive Freedom for All, formerly known as NARAL Pro-Choice America. Minnie, thank you for being here tonight. Um, this case, this, this Watts case is, is beyond enraging. It's infuriating. And it's just like her attorneys were arguing in court. This is a woman who is going through something that hundreds of thousands of women have gone through, right? Problems in pregnancy, miscarriages. She should be treated with compassion, with dignity, with care. But because of this climate and environment we're in now post-Dobbs, this is the America that has been wrought, right? This is a climate where doctors and administrators were clearly afraid to make a decision, and she's now being punished for it. I was about to ask, so why are, I mean, this, I'm no doctor, I'm no lawyer, but this is astounding on its face. So why are prosecutors who are supposed to have judgment and discernment why are they bringing these cases? Why, why is Ms. Watts 
on trial here. You know, this is a case where uh, our colleagues at the organization, If, When, How, are working really closely with her attorneys, with Brittany Watts' attorneys, and they've made the case that this prosecutor has the discretion to drop this case. So it is a really big, important question. We are asking through our various colleagues and networks to weigh in with the prosecutor's office to drop the case, put pressure on the governor's office. But look, there has been a history of criminalizing pregnancy in this country. You know, since 20, 2006, there have been over a thousand cases like Brittany Watts. They don't get in the headlines, but they're, tra they're tragedies across the country. Just after um, SB8 happened in Texas, there was a publicized case um, in the Rio Grande border uh, of a young woman who was being prosecuted for a pregnancy outcome. We know that in anti-abortion states and in abortion ban states, even pre-Roe, that these climates create uh, an interest in prosecuting pregnancies and prosecuting doctors. And so this is something we've been monitoring for a long time. It's definitely a priority of the anti abortion extremist right movement tied into the personhood movement as well. I just have to, I, I, the, the, the fact that the nurse who was comforting Ms. Watts is the one who reported her to the police. Why report her to the police? I mean, does the law say you must re you must report this person to the police? No, there's nothing in the law that indicates that she should be in court at all or being prosecuted, period. There's nothing that is clear about this case. What we do know is she's a young woman, and I'll say it, she's black. Okay, good. Because I'm like, th th I mean, come on. Yes. So she is definitely in a different category, right? Pregnancy while black, we know you've covered it. It's been covered widely lately, um, thanks to some really big public cases mm -hmm. like Serena Williams. Pregnancy while black is incredibly dangerous. Now we're going to add the trauma of possible prosecution and persecution of these women in the most difficult time in their lives. So we know that for cases like this, when you have a young woman who's black, she's definitely more susceptible to bias and to criminalization. We see in so many areas of black life and for people of color and for immigrant women, it's not shocking to me that that is happening in this case as well. And so then is the recourse here, um, the, well, the recourse here is the courts trying to get this, get these laws knocked down, but is, is the recourse politically um, for, for candidates who are pro-reproductive rights to hammer the hell out of this yes. issue. I'm really glad you brought it back to the candidates because we know that the American people are adamantly opposed to prosecution of providers and doctors, to prosecution of patients, to criminalization of outcomes. Focus group and poll after poll show this. So candidates should be unequivocal and clear. It's not just about fighting abortion bans. It's also about fighting abortion stigma. It's also about pregnancy justice and pregnancy safe and healthy pregnancies for all Americans. But we know in cases like this post-Dobbs, women of color are the most impacted, and we have to address that and be upfront about it. The good news is we know Vice President Kamala Harris has been doing a great job of talking about this, and I expect to see her do more of that in 2024 as she embarks on this reproductive freedom tour. I was about to say she is going to be doing more starting next month. She's yes. going. She is going on that tour. Minnie Min, Timurajri, thank you very much you. for coming to the show this evening. And coming up, with casualties mounting, Vladimir Putin is privately signaling that he is willing to accept a truce to end the war in Ukraine. But would Ukraine and the Biden administration agree to it? New reporting provides an answer. That's next.
Today, the Defense Department announced another $250 million package of military aid to Ukraine to counter Russia's war on that democratic nation. The United States will send Ukraine artillery, ammunition, air defense capabilities, and anti-tank weapons from existing DOD stockpiles that Congress previously appropriated. But with Republicans in Congress balking at any at providing any new assistance, the Biden administration may soon be forced to change its support for its embattled ally. Last week, the New York Times reported that Russian President Vladimir Putin has been quietly signaling that he is open to a ceasefire in Ukraine. Now, with Ukraine's counteroffensive stalled in the east, it appears the Biden administration may be privately thinking along the same lines. Politico reports today that Quote, the Biden administration is quietly shifting its focus from supporting Ukraine's goal of total victory over Russia to improving its position in in an eventual negotiation to end the war. Such a negotiation could result in Ukraine having to give up most, if not all, of the roughly 20 percent of its territory currently under Russian occupation. Joining us now, Michael Hirsch, contributing writer at Politico magazine and columnist at Foreign Policy magazine. Michael, thank you very much for being here this evening. So is is this a change of strategy from the U.S., um, this talk, uh, this change in strategy that you wrote about in Politico? And if so, why now? Well, it's a shift. Uh, There's no question that the Biden administration has been hinting really almost since the beginning of the conflict that eventually it would have to end in some kind of negotiation. The president himself uh, wrote that in a New York Times uh, op-ed back in 2022. Uh, But now, because of uh, the holdup in aid, not just uh, from the U.S. Congress, but also the problems uh, in terms of getting an additional 50 billion or so dollars of aid from the Euro- European Union, uh, they're starting to think uh, that they need to uh, shift to a defensive posture uh, that could take them through the coming months. Uh, and this is also a response to the failed uh, counteroffensive that the Ukrainians launched in June, uh, which has been largely stalemated in the East. Mm. Uh, so they're beginning to think uh, that they need to uh adjust to these current circumstances by uh uh b- bolstering air air defense systems uh redeploying forces along the eastern front now into more of a, a, a defensive posture uh and setting up defenses in the north uh along the border with belarus uh where they can prevent any further mm-hmm. aggression by you know, so uh, when the New York Times reported um, its story on the front page on Sunday about what Putin was saying privately, I had the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States, Oksana Makorova, on my show for her response. L- listen to what she had to say when I asked her if um, a ceasefire would be something Ukraine would agree to. Whatever, uh, you know, uh, lies Mr. Putin would like to spread, uh, we should listen to his actual signals. And he keeps bombing Ukrainian cities on a daily basis. They might want an operational pause, which they have been, you know, trying to get in order to get more weapons from their friends, from Iran and North Korea and others. Uh, If they really want peace, there is a very simple solution to that. They should stop their aggressive war, get out from Ukraine, and the peace will return to Ukraine the next day. He wants to destroy all Ukraine and not only Ukraine. So let's not get fooled by whatever um, you know rumors he would like to spread. 
And so, Michael, very, very tough words, very definitive words. And of course, they would say she would say that and President Zelensky would say that publicly. Um, but would they negotiate? Right now, they're not giving any indication they'll negotiate. And I asked uh, a Biden administration official about that New York Times report, and uh, his response was there are no serious discussions that he is aware of. Uh, there may be hints. Uh, this may be, uh, you know, a kind of uh, back channel offering uh, by Putin, but uh, there's nothing really uh, on the record. There's no indication there's going to be any negotiation anytime soon. Uh, most uh, experts believe that Putin will want to wait until he sees who wins the U.S. Uh, presidential election in November, because Donald Trump uh, obviously uh, has been much more sympathetic uh, to Putin's aims than the current president. So uh, no one expects that there's going to be any negotiation soon, nor is there any expectation that if there is a negotiation, uh, either side is going to give in uh, very much. I mean, the idea, uh, you know, obviously one sympathizes with what the ambassador said, but the idea that Russia is simply going to uh, give up and, and turn tail and, and retreat entirely uh, from eastern Ukraine is not realistic. Uh, so there, there's an expectation that there's going to have to be a negotiated ceasefire or a truce of some kind. And it may not come for a year or so. But the point is that both sides, and in particular the Ukrainians, uh, who you know, I'm writing about this week uh, in Politico, that they are posturing themselves to be in the strongest possible position uh, when such a negotiation comes. Michael Hirsch, thank you very much for your time tonight. Thank you. And that's our show for tonight.